Well, it's great to be with you guys one last Sunday. This is the one I've kind of been looking forward to because it's been all bad news so far as we've been going cover to cover through the story of Scripture. We finally get to the good stuff this week. And so this is our conclusion of this three-week study that we've been doing, going from Genesis to Revelation, the whole story of Scripture in just three sermons. So just like the last couple of weeks, I have a handout for you. So if you look under your row at one end of the row, I think um, there should be handouts. Please pass them down. They're kind of being told that this row and that row, there's somewhere under there. Look at them, grab them, pass them down. If your row runs out of handouts, please raise your hand and someone will bring you handouts that were left over on one of the other rows. So one more handout for you guys. If you missed any of the previous couple sermons, uh, they're online. You can find the notes, the audio video, and the handouts online. So you can just go to our website for that so that you fill in whatever gaps are there. So This week, we're going to conclude our story that we introduced a couple weeks ago. What we said is that the whole story of the Bible, from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, could be summarized in nine key words. Nine chapters, if you will. So we began the first week with what we're calling the botched beginning. It began with really good news, actually, the creation chapter. So in the creation chapter, we met an amazingly loving God who beautifully created a universe and a planet Earth as a gift for humanity, made in his image to rule his world. And so creation was wonderful. That chapter began with everything very good, but then we botched it. The second chapter, humanity revolted. In pride, we chose sin. And the result was that death entered the human experience in all of its forms. And the good thing that God had made was broken. And yet, in the midst of that tragedy, God promised that a descendant of Eve, a male child of Eve, would one day come who would crush the head of our enemy and deliver us from sin. That promise was refined in the next chapter, which conveniently we titled Promise, where God made an amazing promise we call the Abrahamic Covenant to a man named Abraham. God promised Abraham and his family land and seed, meaning countless descendants and blessing. And the greatest promise of all that through the family of Abraham, blessing would come to all the families of the earth. And so God has now narrowed the the promised child. It wouldn't just be any son of Eve. It would be a son of Abraham who would deliver us from our enemies and bring us salvation. So the Abrahamic story is wonderful. So you look at at the botched beginning and it ends with this Abrahamic covenant. But it also ends with God's people moving to Egypt and being enslaved. And that's where we entered the next big chunk of the Bible. What we call the messy middle. The messy middle is is the biggest part of our story just by page count. It's all of the Old Testament from the beginning of Exodus to the end of Malachi. It's huge. In the messy middle, we begin with the law, the Mosaic law. You might remember from last week, God delivered the family of Abraham from slavery in Egypt. And then he gave them a new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. We call it the law. And it was a gift. It was a good thing. Because if you'll recall, the Abrahamic covenant, this amazing blessing, it was wonderful, but the family of Abraham had no way to access it, no way to cash in on those blessings in their lifetime. The Mosaic covenant fixed that. 
It gave them the law, all of these rules. And if Israel would simply follow the rules and they could cash in on these blessings in the Abrahamic covenant and enjoy a blessed life, it would be wonderful. And yet the law, it told them what to do, but it didn't give them the desire to do that. It didn't give them the heart. And ultimately humans, we do what we want to do. They didn't want to do it. And so they didn't. And so even though they knew the rules, they did not keep them. Instead of experiencing blessings, most of the time they experienced curses. And that was was exemplified in that period we said he called the judges. It was so dark. Well, that period ended with the next chapter, the king. God chooses a man after his own heart, a king, and makes yet another covenant with him. This is David. God makes a Davidic covenant with him, promises that the family of David will always have authority over the people of God. David's family will always have the throne. David is called to bring blessing to the nation of Israel. It's a wonderful covenant. And yet, just like the Abrahamic covenant, for any of David's descendants to enjoy the blessings of that covenant in their lifetime, what did they have to do? They had to obey the law, which they still didn't want to do. And so they didn't. And so... Davidic king after Davidic king after Davidic king chose sin, chose idolatry, chose wickedness. And as a result, this chapter, the chapter of the king, ends with no king on the throne. The people are exiled. They are punished. And yet in the midst of all of that darkness, we entered the next chapter, hope, chapter 6. God promises hope in the form of a new and better covenant. This is the fourth big covenant that we studied, the new covenant. God promised that this new covenant would replace the Mosaic covenant. It would set it aside and it would be better in every way because it would fix that heart problem. The new covenant wouldn't just tell Israel what to do. It would actually give them the desire to do it so that they would want to obey God. And it would fill them with this Holy Spirit so that they could obey God. And the result is that finally they would enjoy all the blessings of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. This covenant is better in every way, but there was something different about it. It didn't begin yet. And so we closed last week with the end of the Old Testament. This chapter of hope comes to an end. And the key thing to remember is the new covenant's been promised, but they don't have it yet. The Old Testament closes and they're still under the Mosaic covenant. They haven't yet received this new and better thing. And so as the New Testament begins, what that means is that Israel is not under the new covenant. They are still under the law. That's important to get clear in our minds. And so I want you to go ahead and actually turn to the first page of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Here's the deal. Most people assume... That as they're reading their Bible, when they get to Matthew chapter 1, they've gotten to the New Testament. This must be the new era. This must be our part of the Bible, right? This is about the church. This is about us. The answer is no. Actually, Matthew chapter 1 isn't about us. It's still about Israel. It's still Old Testament. They are still under the law. They still do not have the new covenant. When does the new era begin? Our era. Anybody know? When Jesus dies, Matthew 27, if you really want to be accurate, the New Testament starts in Matthew 27, not Matthew 1, still Old Testament until Jesus dies on the cross. With that understanding in mind, this story is going to make a lot more sense today. It's a story that's ultimately all about one man who brings a surprising solution to the problem that we created with our sin. 
You know who he is. You know where this is going. It's all about Jesus. The challenge is, though, you've been hearing about Jesus probably for a long time. So it's not that surprising to you. Kind of know the dude. Kind of know what's going on with his life. It's important to step back and realize that when Jesus showed up, nobody saw him coming. Nobody could imagine what Jesus was going to do. And so we've titled this portion Surprising Solution to remind us that no one expected this. No one thought this was how the story was going to go. You know some movies that are really great because you never saw the twist coming? That's the Bible. Literally no one but God saw it coming. So let's look at this surprising solution that is all about one man, all about Jesus. Let's move into this next chapter. It's the big one. We're finally here. I mean, Jesus, all big, bold letters. He's right at the center of the timeline because he's what it's all about. Everything we've studied so far pointed forward to Jesus. Everything we will study after points back to him. He is the center of this whole story. He's what it's all about. So we're finally to the big event. This is the climax of our story. So let's jump into this next chapter, chapter seven, the chapter about Jesus. Here is how Matthew kicks off. This exciting climax of our story, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. I got to tell you, when I, as a kid, read the book of Matthew, I thought, wow, this is the most boring way possible to start a book. Like if you're trying to get your book on the New York Times bestsellers list, you don't do it this way. You'll start with a genealogy. Who does that? Well, Matthew does because at this age, in the Old Testament age, genetics mattered. Genealogy was important. Because remember what the Old Testament promised to us. A deliverer was coming. And think of the whole Old Testament as like a funnel. It starts on the big end of the funnel. Who is a deliverer going to be? A male descendant of Eve. That's a whole lot of people. But then you learn later, well, but a descendant of Abraham. And then you learn later, but a descendant of David. That's where the king will come from. That's where the savior will come from. And so Matthew starts there. He said, I'm not going to waste your time. If this guy doesn't fit God's funnel, he's not the guy. And so Matthew starts to show us that Jesus is qualified to be king by his genetics. He can be the king. He can be the savior because he's from the right family. However, there were lots of men in Israel when Jesus was alive who were genetically qualified. They were descendants of David. And so how do we know that this particular male descendant of David is actually God's man, God's king and savior? That's actually the point of a story that if you've been a Christian for a long time, you probably heard in Sunday school and thought was kind of odd, but was cute. Jesus' baptism. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. I always wondered as a kid, what is going on when Jesus is baptized? Why does he do that? Well, the point of it is actually at the end. So if you're looking at Matthew 3, jump down to verse 16. This is the point. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This isn't just Jesus' baptism. This is Jesus' coronation. This is the moment when God places the crown on Jesus' head. 
Every time that a king was chosen in the Old Testament, he was anointed, usually with oil. Jesus is the greatest king of all, so God doesn't use oil. He uses the Holy Spirit to anoint Jesus as king. And then when God says publicly, this is my beloved son, beloved son here is not a Trinitarian title yet. Doesn't yet mean second member of the Trinity. It's a kingly title. In in Hebrew, that meant the king of Israel. So God is declaring the king of Israel has been crowned with the spirit. So this is the moment when Jesus is appointed. Out of all the male descendants of David who were on earth at the time, God is choosing this one to be king at this moment. That's the point of the baptism. But there had been a lot of kings in the line of David who had been appointed by God and yet had failed to be our savior. Why? Because they sinned. They blew it. They had their own sin to deal with. So how do we know that this Davidic king is going to be any different than all the Davidic kings who came before him and blew it with sin? Well, that is the point of the next story. That's actually one of the most important stories in your entire Bible. It's another one that we often tell our kids in Sunday school without realizing how phenomenally important it is to everything in the story. It's Matthew chapter 4. It is a temptation account. If you look at just the first verse, Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's interesting what God is arranging here. God puts the pieces together. It is in a sense, a redo of Genesis three. The the setting is not as nice. It's wilderness instead of a garden. But once again, you have one person brought by God to go mano a mano with Satan. The first time Adam chose sin, second time goes differently. Every time that Satan tempts Jesus, and man, he hits Jesus in some vulnerable spots. Do you know what Jesus does? You can actually tell if you look look down in the story in your Bible, and you may notice a lot of the words are capitalized. That is your clue that Jesus is quoting. Does anyone know what book he's quoting from? Deuteronomy is the answer. It is the law. Jesus quotes from the Mosaic law every time that Satan tempts him. Why? Because Jesus is demonstrating to the universe that he is the ultimate law keeper. He will do what no human being before or after has ever done. He will finally pass the test of the law. When we talked last week, all these Abrahamic covenant blessings, all these Davidic covenant blessings available. What do you got to do to get them? Go through the law. Everyone failed that test except Jesus. That's why this chapter is so important. If this chapter wasn't in your Bible, we are all wasting our time. He was like every other king who came before him. He blew it in sin, go home. But no, Jesus did what no one does. He is the new and better Adam. He is the one and only human being who ever passes the test. And so Matthew 4, that is the moment when, when Jesus has proven to be God's king of kings and deliverer of the human race. He's proven by his obedience. Okay, so now that Jesus has been qualified and appointed and proven to be the promised king, he begins talking like a king. So from this point forward, he's talking to the nation like a king. You see that immediately later on in chapter 4. Look down at verse 17. Jesus, uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, 
repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to the nation as a whole. And he says, repent for the kingdom literally from heaven. The Davidic kingdom is at hand. So what does he mean there by repent? That's a common word here at often in church. When humans are told to repent, it it always means turn away from something bad to something good to avoid God's punishment. But what is the bad thing? What is the good thing? What is the punishment? You have to determine that from context. So in this context, what what do they need to turn? What do they need to turn from and towards? Well, we've been talking about that. What is the thing they have to get right if they're going to enjoy all the blessings of these covenants? The law. So repent in this context. Jesus is telling the nation, hey guys, it's time to obey the Mosaic law. God's been telling you this for many centuries. It's time to come back and obey the Mosaic law. That's the only way that you as a nation can enjoy these amazing covenant blessings in your lifetime. You've got to come back. So Jesus is telling the nation, it's time to return to the Mosaic law so you can enjoy God's promised kingdom on earth in your lifetime. So that's pretty clear. The, the problem is, it's a bit of a rabbit trail. I have often heard this particular verse used as part of our gospel. How we tell people to get to heaven. That's not correct. You got to interpret every verse in its context. And the context here has nothing to do with heaven. With going to heaven. It's about heaven coming to earth in the form of the Davidic kingdom coming here. It's not about how you go to heaven after you die. And, and the word repent here is about the Mosaic law. And remember we talked last week. The Mosaic law has nothing to do with getting to heaven. It never has. Heaven is always by faith alone. So we have to be really clear with how we use our words. Jesus is not telling the nation of Israel how to go to heaven when they die. He is telling the nation of Israel how to enjoy God's blessings in this life through obedience. They had to obey the law. So please don't use this verse as part of our gospel. It doesn't fit there. Jesus is talking to the nation of Israel, telling them how to enjoy God's blessings in this life. It comes by obeying the Mosaic law. Problem is... Many people in in Jesus' audience assumed that they already had the law mastered. Who am I talking about? The Pharisees. Those those leaders of the nation of Israel who were in Jesus' audience. Everybody in the crowds looked up to these guys. These are our leaders. These are the the amazing guys who have figured out the law. They are spiritual. Um, The Pharisees had a trick. You see, they were wealthy. So wealthy that they didn't have to work. So they spent their, all their time, all their time, every day, keeping the list. And man, they had a list. The, the Pharisees had boiled the whole Mosaic law down to like 615 commands they could check. And so they did that. They spent all their time every day keeping the list. And as a result, they thought we are good with God. We call that legalism. They thought they had earned their way with God. We don't need Jesus. We don't need a savior. We don't need a deliverer. We are good in God's sight. And so Jesus is going to teach his most famous sermon. What comes next in the book of Matthew to get all of these self-righteous people lost. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. You can turn to Matthew 5. It's arguably the greatest and most beautiful sermon ever written. The key though to understanding the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 is to know that the Sermon on the Mount, every bit of it, is bad news. The entire Sermon on the Mount is bad news designed to get them all desperate. That's the point. 
Jesus wants self-righteous people to understand they are not as righteous as they think they are. And so if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you may be familiar with this amazing little trick that Jesus does. He takes a checkbox command that the Pharisees had mastered and he redefines it to show them how far short they fall of God's actual standard. So murder. Yeah, you heard, do not murder. Good job, Pharisees, you haven't killed anybody. But did you realize that what God was getting at in that command was actually, you're not even allowed to hate anybody or you're just as guilty. And so it's the same thing with adultery. Do not commit adultery. Good job, Pharisees, way to go. But did you realize that in God's eyes, if you lust after someone who's not your spouse, you're just as guilty? Jesus is showing them that, no, you are not good. You need me. And he, he pulls it all together. And in the most terrifying verse of all, and you probably read this verse and you've never thought about how terrifying it's meant to be. It really is meant to terrify people. It's the last verse in chapter five. So end of chapter five, verse 48, Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay, so you think you have figured out how to obey the law sufficiently that you don't need me? Okay, here's the standard. Perfection. And just so you understand what perfect means, I mean as morally perfect as God himself is. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it is all bad news designed to get everyone lost. There's no good news here. All bad news designed to show humans how far they fall short. And that that bad news, it culminates in this This often misunderstood um, illustration at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 13. Here is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I hear this misused so often. Jesus says, verse 13 of chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. You got to interpret that in the context in which it was given. So in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, how narrow is the gate? Perfection. How many people in the history of the human race have walked through the narrow gate? One. And it's not you. So are you going to make it through the narrow gate in Jesus' story? Well, actually you are, but not on your own two feet, and that's a surprise. But no one walks in except Jesus. And so I'll often hear this passage used in a church setting to terrify people. You've got to do good deeds, you've got to do good deeds, because look how narrow the gate is. No, no. If you ever use this passage for that point, what you're telling people is you have to be perfect to earn your way into heaven, and that's heresy. Oh, no, no, that's not about earning your way in. Only Jesus makes it in. That's how narrow the gate is. Everyone who's trying to make it through on their own is on the broad path. So Jesus is getting everyone lost. He's helping them understand no one is okay with God through their works. No one has the law figured out. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's all bad news. They should all be desperate at this point. Then Jesus is going to do this thing that he often does. He follows his teaching with amazing miracles to show that he actually has the authority to teach the crazy stuff he's teaching. So he does amazing miracles. And Israel has to face the fact. They're in trouble. Their king has come and they were not ready. Their king has come and, and they're in desperate shape. And so what can they do? 
What is the solution? Well, Jesus finally gives them the good news. I like to tell you, Sermon on the Mount, all bad news. Good news comes later, Matthew chapter 11. So turn to chapter 11. This is where Jesus gives the good news to his audience. Chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, in Jesus' audience, who of them will at this point be weary and heavy laden? Everyone who's been paying attention, everyone who's been listening and believing will at this point in the story feel weary. They will feel heavy laden because they'll realize we can't earn our way in. We're in trouble. And so what do they need to do? They need to come to Jesus. And then Jesus uses this, this yoke language. You need to take my yoke upon you. What is that? That's kingly language. That's a language of submission. You need to bow before me. And so what Jesus is saying is it is time for you, Israel, to come to me as your Davidic king and bow the knee. I am your king. Bow. Take my yoke upon you. And the result will be I will give you the rest your soul has craved. I will fix the problem. I will take away your brokenness. I will bring everything you have ever hoped for to fruition. All you have to do is bow the knee. And so now Israel faces a choice. Will they accept Jesus as their king or will they reject him? And you know where this is going. In the next chapter, chapter 12, the Pharisees reject Jesus. Later, the crowds will reject Jesus. And Jesus rejects the nation too. After Matthew 12, when the Pharisees say no to Jesus as their king, Jesus rejects them. He no longer offers himself as king. Instead, he heads to the cross where he is crucified. And in the crucifixion, it looks like the story has come to a tragic end. It looks like Jesus loses. It looks like Satan wins. And yet Satan could not be more wrong. Satan completely blew it. I don't know how. I don't know why. But he totally missed the promise of Genesis 3. Do you remember what God said to Eve? One of your male descendants will die. But in his death will crush the head of Satan once and for all. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. It is the greatest surprise of all. It is the twist no one saw coming. In the cross, a moment of weakness and vulnerability and defeat, Jesus destroys our enemy once and for all. Paul brings that out in Colossians 2. He says, having disarmed the demonic powers and authorities, he, that is Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's so much irony here that you don't get because you wear crosses around your neck. For us, the cross has become decoration. In Jesus' day, it wasn't. It was the most horrific form of evil known to man. It was the most horrific form of torture available to people. It, It was evil incarnate. Jesus takes this symbol of evil and in the greatest twist ever, uses it to defeat the powers of evil once and for all. And that's why you can wear a cross as jewelry because its evil power is gone. Jesus used that instrument of evil to defeat evil once and for all so that we win. Amazing twist that happens at the cross. And so at the cross, Jesus wins this incredible victory 
And when he crushes evil once and for all, he also earns things for us. At the cross, Jesus purchases and makes available incredible things for you and me. Far too many things for me to list this morning. Like I could spend the whole rest of the day just listing things for you that Jesus accomplished and earned for you on the cross. I only have time for the big three. So we'll start with three things that Jesus earned or accomplished for you on the cross. Number one, forgiveness of sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he made it possible for your sins to be forgiven. That was never possible before Jesus died. So remember, our God is holy. He is righteous. He is perfectly just. He cannot simply overlook evil. He cannot simply sweep sin under the rug. There has to be a sacrifice to pay for that sin. Well, what about all those animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament? We talked about this last week. Animal can't pay for human sin. None of those animals sacrificed in the Old Testament ever brought about forgiveness of human sin. No, there had to be a perfect human, a perfect sacrifice who would die for us to make it possible for a holy God to forgive unholy people like you and me. So that's what the death of Jesus on the cross provides. Ephesians 1, 7. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Jesus' death, his shed blood on the cross is what purchases forgiveness. So how was Abraham forgiven? By the blood of Jesus. Yeah, even though there's 2,000 years between Abraham and Jesus, God stands above time. So that's easy for God. Every person that has ever been forgiven in the history of the human race has been forgiven based on one thing, the blood of Jesus. That's always the basis for forgiveness. So by dying on the cross and shedding his blood, Jesus purchases forgiveness. He makes it possible for you and me to be forgiven. Second thing he makes possible on the cross, the new covenant. We're told in Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus took the cup after they'd eaten it, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. We celebrate that every time we take communion, that little cup of grape juice. It's not just a fun little thing to do. It is a symbol of the new covenant. See, Israel was suffering under the Mosaic covenant, not because the Mosaic covenant was bad, but because they didn't have the, the heart, the desire to obey it. They needed a new and better covenant, but you can't just wish away a divine covenant. So Jesus had to come. And when he came and died on the cross, he took all of the curses of the Mosaic covenant upon himself for all of humanity. And he earned all of the blessings of the Mosaic covenant in his perfect obedience. And having taken all the curses and earned all the blessings, he was finally able to set aside the Mosaic covenant. So Mosaic covenant's done. There's no more of it. It has been set aside once and for all. And by setting aside the Mosaic covenant, Jesus has now made it possible for us to enjoy the new covenant. So he's given us forgiveness and the new covenant and third eternal life. Hebrews 2. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And the point of that passage is, if you trusted in Jesus, you don't have to fear death because death is lost. Jesus defeated death and and earned for you eternal life, never ending life. That is yours Because Jesus died for you. Now these are amazing promises. Forgiveness and the new covenant and eternal life. It's really easy to say that you have them. How do you know? 
How do you know that these are actually yours? Well, simple, because Jesus rose. The resurrection, you can't overstate how important it is. Without the resurrection, this is all a tragedy and we are all wasting our time. Without the resurrection, death won and you have no hope. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and that proved he won. The resurrection was the receipt that Jesus' payment was sufficient so that you can have forgiveness and the new covenant and eternal life. So Jesus died and rose from the dead, made all this possible. And I wish we could talk about this so much more, but we have to keep moving because I am already over my time for this chapter and there's so much good stuff to come. So let's move on to the next one, the church. Congratulations, you finally got to your part of the story. It's been a long time, hasn't it? You're not till chapter eight. You're not till almost the end of the story before finally the Bible gets to your era, the church era. So turn to Ephesians chapter one. That's where we're going to read about our era. If you recall, the big idea of the Bible, we said the first week, kind of one sentence summary of the whole story of the Bible from cover to cover is that God desires to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. Now, kingdom is one of those churchy words. So what does it mean, kingdom? Well, really simple, actually. Kingdom is simply God's rule on earth. How God is ruling over earth. And if you think about it, over the history of the human race, God has ruled on earth in many different ways. His kingdom has looked different at different times. So God's kingdom was one way in the garden. It was a different way during Noah's time. It was a different way during Abraham. It was different during Moses when they got the law. It was different during the judges. It was different during the monarchy when the king was on earth. So there's been lots of different forms of the kingdom of God on earth. The church is simply the newest form of the kingdom of God on earth. So this thing this morning that we're doing right here, this is a kingdom thing. This is the current kingdom of God on earth. God is currently extending his rule on the planet earth through the church. This new form of the kingdom of God is very different than the previous form of the kingdom of God. So how was God extending his rule on earth before the church? Well, through the nation of Israel. A geopolitical nation like any other with laws and borders and an army and currency and all the things that make up a nation. We're very different than that. We're not a geopolitical entity. We're not a nation. We're something fundamentally different. And you see in Ephesians 1 verse 22 what we are. Ephesians 1 verse 22. This is the closest thing to a definition of the church I have ever found. He put, that's God the Father, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what is the church? Well, the church is simply the body of Christ on earth. The the church is Jesus' actual living body on earth. We're not a club We're not an organization. We're the body of Christ on earth with Jesus as our head. This is a living body that is open to all people of all ethnicities. And so you have Jews enter this living body called the church in Acts 2. And you have uh, Samaritans coming in Acts 8 and Gentiles in Acts 10. All races, all groups, all nationalities are welcomed into this living body of Christ on equal terms. And and that's, that's actually a radical thing. Is if you look around at the planet, at at humanity, you see a lot of strife and division and hatred and violence. 
And, and we are actually the solution to all of it. You may not have thought of the church in those terms before, but that's actually what the church is meant to do. We, we are the solution to all the divisions and strife in this world because we are the one family of God that is open to all people on equal terms. All ethnicities, all nationalities, all socioeconomic levels, all educational, all backgrounds, whatever it is, all are welcome equally here into this family, this one family. So the church is the body of Christ on earth. It, it is probably obvious at this point that in describing it that way, I am saying that the church is not Israel. We're not Israel. We're something different. And just so you know, that does set apart Grace Bible Church's view from the view you would hear in many other churches in this town. So if you grew up Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian, uh, the church you grew up in would actually not agree with me on this. Because those churches hold that actually the church and Israel are the same. Same group of people. We disagree. We think that the church is not Israel. We are distinct. And, and that leads to some practical implications that, that you'll actually see and hear often at Grace Bible Church. Um, number one, we're not going to tell you to obey the Mosaic Law. Why? Because the Mosaic Law was for Israel. And you're not Israel. We believe that the church is called to follow Jesus, not Moses. We're called to follow Jesus' commands. Now, not surprisingly, because Jesus liked Moses a lot, there's a whole lot of overlap. Many things that are the same, but some things that aren't. And so some of those commands given to Moses are, are not something you need to worry about anymore. Dietary restrictions, ceremonial laws, even the Sabbath commands, all those are gone because those were just part of the Mosaic law. But there's some things that Jesus told you that are actually way above what Moses said. It's like Moses said, don't murder. Jesus said, hey, you can't even hate. So we follow Jesus, not Moses. Second practical implication that you see roughly every six weeks here at Grace Bible Church, we don't baptize babies. Now, we don't have any grudge against those who do. That's a beautiful thing. But we have a different theology, a different overall view. You may wonder, well, why do you not baptize babies where some churches do? Well, the churches that baptize babies are churches that believe that the church is Israel and, and they look at the Old Testament and they read about how the Israelites wanted to include their babies in the covenant community. And so what ceremony did they use to include a baby in the covenant community? Circumcision. Well, the New Testament is kind of down on circumcision. So they have replaced circumcision with the New Testament ceremony, which is baptism. So what they're doing is they are trying to include their babies in the covenant community, which is the church, which is Israel in their theology. We don't see it that way. We don't think that the church and Israel are the same. And so we believe for baptism, you should just do it like you see it in the New Testament. And throughout the New Testament, it's always believers, people who've trusted in Jesus. So that's who we baptize here. So third practical implication of our belief that the church and Israel are not the same. We don't believe the church should seek political power. We believe that the church is not a geopolitical entity. When we try to take political power, it goes badly. The church tried that for a thousand years. It got real ugly. We think that that was because of mistaken theology. The church forgot that they're not Israel. The church has no political power, no military power. God hasn't given us any of that. And so we believe that it is inappropriate for the church to ever try to force a nation or a group to follow our rules. That's not our role on earth. Now, I do want to clarify, as individuals, we are called to be good citizens of whatever nation we belong to. So I'm assuming many of you are citizens of the United States. 
To be a good citizen, you should educate yourself, vote wisely. Uh, Some of you should even run for office. But when you do that, you do it as individuals, not as a church. Because the church is not a political or military institution. We are the body of Christ on earth, open to all people of all nations and all political persuasions on equal terms. So the church is not Israel. That leads to a couple Follow-up questions. When then did the church begin? Well, in in Acts chapter 2, actually. Let me read the passage to you. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, that's roughly 50 days after Jesus died and rose from the dead. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, all the believers who trusted in Jesus, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That is a significant moment in Acts 2. That's a totally new thing. A group of people gathering together and the Holy Spirit coming upon them and filling them never happened before. That is the beginning of the new covenant age. That is the birth of the church. Now, how do we know that that moment is the birth of the church? Well, because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. What Paul is saying is that the thing that made you part of Jesus's church is the Holy Spirit. Coming to live in your life. When he filled you, that made you part of the spirit. It's not signing your name on some line. It's not coming to some membership class. It's not joining a small group. Those are all good things to do. But none of those make you a part of the church. No, God does that. When the Holy Spirit comes and fills you, that's what makes a a person a part of the church. And the Holy Spirit didn't start doing that until Acts 2. So the church can't exist before Acts 2. So that's the beginning of the church. Second question that should come to our minds as we think about the church I'm going to guess that most of us in this room are not Jews. Most of us, like me, I think I'm mostly British, maybe some German way back in time. Uh, most of us are Gentiles. And so the question is, well, here we are with the, new, with the Holy Spirit, part of the new covenant, which was not promised to me as a Gentile. It was promised to the Jews. So how can I, as a Gentile, be enjoying promises made to the Jews, not to the Gentiles? How did that happen? How is it that we Gentiles are enjoying all of these Old Testament promises made to Israel? Well, the answer is found in a profound verse, an amazing verse in Galatians 3. Now the promises, all of those Abrahamic promises, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. You're probably confused at, that point, at this point. That's a hard verse to wrap your mind around. Paul is using uh, a little dichotomy in in the Hebrew, Greek, and English language. When I say the word seed, do I mean one or many? You don't know. Same in all three languages. What Paul's saying is that throughout the Old Testament, they always assumed that when God said all these blessings will come to your seed, they all assumed you meant everyone, all the descendants of Abraham. No, 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 God didn't. God meant one. One descendant of Abraham. The one and only descendant who would pass the test of the law. Do you remember how we said the temptation account is more important than you ever realized? Because that is the moment 
when Jesus is identified as the one and only seed of the Abrahamic covenant, the one and only Jew who would receive all the promises. So the Abrahamic covenant promises, it's important to realize, they do not belong to the Jews, they belong to the Jew, the one Jew. In, in the classes I teach, I tell people, he, Jesus is the super Jew, the one and only guy to ever be what the Jews were meant to be and therefore receive all the promises made to them. So a lot of people disagree about the promised land today, Palestine. Does it belong to the Jews or does it belong to the Palestinians? Answer is neither. Actually, it belongs to Jesus. It's his land, only his land. And he's going to come back for it one day, but he hasn't yet. It's his land because he is the only Jew who perfectly obeyed the law and received all the promises. Okay, so they're all Jesus's. How are you and I enjoying them? Well, Paul gets to that at the end of the chapter. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, when you trusted in Jesus and the Holy Spirit baptized you into his body, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The answer to the question, how can I as a Gentile be enjoying Old Testament promises made to the Jews, is answered in the underlined phrase, is Paul's favorite prepositional phrase, in Christ. The moment I trusted in Jesus, God placed me in Christ, inside Jesus. And now what's true of Jesus is true of me. So you are a descendant of Abraham because Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. You are an heir of the Abrahamic covenant promises because Jesus is an heir of the Abrahamic covenant promises. All these amazing promises made in the Old Testament, Jesus has earned them all and now he shares them with everyone who is in him, whether Jew or Gentile. So a Jewish believer today does not have special favors from God that you don't have. We are all equally blessed because we are in Christ. And he is the one seed of Abraham who has received all the blessings. So we who are in Christ enjoy all of these incredible things. And that is what is so beautiful about the church. God offers all of those blessings on equal terms to every person on earth who will simply come to Jesus. And what a beautiful thing. Where else will you find on earth... A group, of infinite, a group that enjoys infinite blessing that is truly available to everyone who will come. Regardless of race or nationality or education level or whatever it might be. Everyone is welcome. That's the good news that we share in the gospel. So when we tell somebody, hey, I have good news for you. What we mean is you, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a U.S. citizen or a, a Chinese national, whoever you might be, whether you have a criminal background or came with a silver spoon in your mouth, whatever your story is, I can promise you that God has amazing blessings available for you that were earned for you by Jesus. You don't have to work for him. All you got to do is trust in him and then God's going to place you inside of him and everything that's true of him becomes true of you. You get forgiveness. You get eternal life. You get the new covenant in Christ. All you have to do is believe he died for you and rose from the dead. That's our good news that we get to share with people. And the wonderful thing is as good as that news is, it gets even better. And that's our next chapter. The end of our story, chapter 8. We're to the part of the story we call Shalom. So you can turn to Revelation 21 
right, right near the very end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 21. Uh, I don't usually wear a black shirt like this to preach in. This is my Johnny Cash shirt. It makes me feel like him. He's my favorite singer, songwriter, and artist. The reason I love Johnny Cash is he had uh, an unprecedented talent of taking biblical scripture um, and turning it into powerful and compelling song that has amazing imagery. And one of Cash's favorite books of the Bible to use is Revelation. So you'll see it pop up frequently in songs like When the Man Comes Around and Ain't No Grave, It's All Revelation. Uh, What Cash does is, is he captures what is just words on a page and he paints a picture with it. And I think that's what God wants us to do with Revelation. He wants us to see the picture of what is coming. And the passage we're about to read, it's meant to paint a picture in your mind of what is coming when God fulfills all of his promises to you. So look with me in chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. The new heavens and the new earth. If you wanted one word to wrap around all of that, it's the Hebrew word shalom. So we chose that for the last word of our story. Shalom in Hebrew, it means the peace that comes when all of God's promises to you have been fulfilled. It's far richer than the English word peace, just means cessation of hostilities. That's not the Hebrew word. Shalom, it means everything that was broken has been fixed. Everything you've been waiting for God to do has been done. That's the future, shalom. We don't have shalom yet. There's not shalom on earth today. There's violence and strife and warfare and evil on earth today. And Satan, our enemy, still, he still roams and, and rules on earth today. But we know that that is coming to an end. And that leads us to the first thing that all Christians can agree is going to happen in the future. And that's how I'm going to kind of map this out. We're going to spend most of the next few minutes talking about what all Christians and all churches agree is going to happen in the future. Then for just a second, we'll talk about our particular position, what we hold, and then back to what everyone agrees on. Every Christian can agree that the next big thing that's happening is Jesus is coming back. Jesus will literally bodily return to earth. And the book of Revelation picks that up in chapter 19. So turn back. This is before the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Jump down to verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written king of kings and Lord of lords. So Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it won't be like the first time. The first time he came in humility and obscurity and poverty as a carpenter's son in a manger. Not with the second time. Second time he's coming back in power and majesty and glory. He's coming back as king of kings. And when he comes back in glory, that leads us to the second thing that all Christians can agree. When he comes back, he wins. So look with me starting in verse 19. 
It says, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is a fairly bleak passage, all things considered. Probably not what you read to your kids as they're going to sleep at night. Um, In this passage, Jesus wins. And what you may not be seeing here is it's actually the most anticlimactic battle ever. Um, When it says that a sword comes out of his mouth, that's a metaphorical, it's a biblical way of of talking about speech. So what's going to happen is Jesus is going to come back on, on his white horse. And as best we can tell, you're with him. You're part of his army. You're there also on a white horse, but you don't do anything. You're completely useless. So am I. Jesus shows up and all he does is speak a word and all of his enemies die in an instant. It's a battle that lasts one word. Jesus speaks and they all lose. And as soon as Jesus has defeated all of his enemies, the next thing we can all agree on is Jesus will judge all people based on their works. Now, at first you read that and you probably think, wait a minute, that sounds like heresy. I thought salvation was by faith alone. Well, here's the key. There are two different judgments coming. And which judgment you stand at depends on faith. If you have exercised faith in Jesus, if you are a believer, then in the next life, when Jesus evaluates your works, it will be at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll already be in heaven. You will already be forgiven. You will already be saved. And yet there is coming a day when you as a believer will stand before your Lord and master and give an account for your life. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5. For we believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this judgment is not of your faith. Faith got you there. Faith got you to heaven, to the judgment seat of Christ. You are saved, but now that you're saved by faith, now it's time to stand before Jesus and and give account of your works. Jesus will evaluate all your works, both good and evil. And again, heaven or hell are not at stake. What's at stake is honor and reward. Will you hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant? Will you receive honor and reward from Jesus only if you have done good deeds? Okay, so that's the believer's judgment. For those who have not trusted in Jesus, their judgment day is very different. They will stand before what the Bible calls the great white throne. And the Bible talks about it in the next chapter of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 20, look down at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now jump down to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Your name is written in the book of life because you've trusted in Jesus, assuming you have. In that case, you, you pass out of this judgment. This judgment isn't for you. This judgment is for those whose names aren't written in the book of life. If, if their name isn't written in the book of life, it means that in this life, they said no to Jesus' gift. They, they said, hey, I'm going to stand on my own two feet. I'm going to walk through that narrow gate. Well, 
you know what happens when somebody tries to walk through. You got through, but it wasn't because you walked. It's because you, you were carried by Jesus. You said, Jesus, here I am. I'm going to climb on your back, okay? And he said, yes, and he carried you through the narrow gate. They said no to that. I'm going to walk through, and they don't make it because no one does. And so the other books are open, the books of their works, and that goes badly. When you're trying to make it through the narrow gate on your works, no one does, and so they're condemned. So judgment happens, and after judgment, fourth thing that all Christians can agree Jesus will then fix all that is broken. That's when we get to chapter 21. That is finally when we have shalom. All that is evil, all that is broken is done away with, and a new heavens and a new earth are created where we enjoy God's presence forever. So those are the big ideas. All Christians can agree on that. Now, the details, those are up for debate. There's a lot of confusing details in the Bible about what's coming in the future. And it's okay to disagree about these. To help you, I've given you a chart because who doesn't like a chart? So there you go. It's on your handout. You can go back through that. Here it is. Uh, I'll cover it in about 30 seconds. So here you go. Because this isn't the crucial thing. This isn't the important thing. But at Grace Bible Church, we do believe that there's a future for the nation of Israel. Because God made promises to them that haven't been fulfilled yet. Particular land, particular boundaries. So we believe Jesus is going to come back and fulfill those for the nation of Israel. And it plays out like this. Church age ends in a rapture. We go to see Jesus. Then a really bad time called the Great Tribulation. Seven years. Humbles Israel. Brings them to their knees. They trust in Jesus. Jesus comes back. Sets up the millennial kingdom. Fulfills all those land promises to the nation of Israel. Millennial kingdom ends with Satan coming back. Deceiving a lot of people. And then God shows up. There's a great white throne judgment, and we enter the new heavens and the new earth. Whether you agree with us or not on that, that's a minor deal. The important thing is the four things that we covered that everybody agrees with. That the end of the story is like the beginning. Do you remember where this story began? In a garden. In a garden where everything was very good. I find it powerful that when God describes this new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21, one of the images that he gives us is a stream flowing between trees. And those trees are named the tree of life. So we go from a garden with a tree of life and then we lost it because we made a really bad choice. And we brought sin and death and destruction into our existence. But God didn't give up on us. And so God himself, Jesus, fixed what we had broken so that the end of the story is like the beginning. We are back in the garden with the tree of life in a place that is very good. That's where the story is. It's the greatest story ever written. From the garden to the garden, from very good to to very good, all through Jesus. You now know the story. So if you've ever wondered, what is the Bible about? If you've wanted to know, how can I share the story of the Bible with somebody? You just need to memorize nine words. It's not that hard. So just nine words, creation, revolt, promise, law, king, hope, Jesus, church, shalom. If you've got those nine words, you've got the whole story from cover to cover the Bible. You are ready to share the greatest story ever with those who haven't yet heard it. Now you may think, who can I share with that hasn't yet heard this? Do I need to be a missionary and go to a country where Christianity hasn't yet penetrated? Well, that's a great idea. We need people to go to those countries, but something is about to happen in a few days. Thousands of people are about to come from countries that haven't heard the gospel to our town. International students are descending upon us because they want to go to Texas A&M. And that means lots of people are coming to your town who haven't heard the greatest story ever told. And maybe you can tell them. And we have an opportunity to help you to do that. So we have found that the best way to get a chance to share a good story like this with someone is first to serve them. 
If you'll share love with them, then, then maybe they'd like to know what you're all about. So we have the big giveaway coming up. This is our annual event. It's been going on pretty much for millennia now, um, where we gather together furniture and household goods and give it to international students and their families simply as an act of love, as a way to demonstrate to them what Jesus does. And the hope is to build relationships where we get to tell them this greatest story ever about Jesus. The thing is, though, this is a really challenging event to pull off. It takes a lot of work. We need over 200 volunteers, all told, to pull off the big giveaway. So we need your help for this. Um, we've got a number of ways for you to help, a number of ways for you to connect. Um, if you look at your bulletin, there's an announcement for the big giveaway, and you'll find a, a link so you can look it up online. You'll also find an email address if you'd like to email someone to get connected, or if you just like picking up the phone and calling, there's a number. Super easy to remember, 777-5555. So just dial 979-777-5555. It is a big giveaway number. It goes straight to that and say, I want to help. How can I help? So number of things coming up uh, are, are kind of our big week where most of the activity will be is starting uh, next Sunday. I think it is August 18th through August 25th or 24th. We're going to have the big move. We'll move all the furniture over. Big sort. Go through it and get it ready. Uh, the big party over here at, in Anderson Park where we'll get to know the students the night before we give stuff away. And then the actual big giveaway. And then following the event, we ask families to invite students into their homes to have a meal with them and hopefully get a chance to share the story in nine words. So, so there you go. So that's the goal. Uh, we're asking you to sign up to, again, look at your bulletin or call that number 777-5555. This is a great way. You, you now know the greatest story ever told in nine words. You need to share it with somebody. That'll help you know it better, appreciate it more, and help you to be useful to Jesus to share it with somebody who doesn't know it yet. So I want to close by praying that God will give you a chance to share this story with somebody in the next couple weeks. Thank you, God, that you love to to tell a story at the most basic level you are a god who loves a great story and you have told the greatest story of all in the pages of scripture and and in the story of history you have worked out in the human race a story that no one saw coming it is so surprising in its greatness and its love we thank you for how you are are fixing the problem that we created we're the ones responsible for the fall. You didn't do that. You gave us a garden that was very good, where the tree of life stood, where we enjoyed your presence in the cool of the day and knew nothing about sin and shame and death. We blew it, and yet you didn't give up on us. You committed to fix what we had broken and to take the pain of that solution upon yourself. We thank you so much, Jesus, that you became one of us. You did what none of us ever did, you kept the, the test of the law, you kept the rules so that you could earn all the blessings, and then you died in our place as our sacrifice and rose from the dead to defeat sin and Satan and death once and for all, and now you share all of these incredible things that you alone earned, you share them with us for free. We thank you so much for that, Jesus. We thank you that through your death and resurrection, you are leading us towards shalom. You're bringing us back to the garden where everything once again will be very good. We celebrate that and look forward to that. We do pray, God, that you would give us a chance, each of us in this room, a chance to share this very good story in nine words with someone who hasn't yet heard it. I pray in the next couple of weeks that you give a chance to everyone in the room. I pray particularly 
particularly for those who will get to speak with international students, that they would love on those students, that they would share this great news with them, and that many people in our town and in our world would come to trust in Jesus through this beautiful and amazing story that you have written in the pages of your word. We thank you so much that you're a good father who never gives up on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. I'll see you at the big give.